The New Testament reading is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, them. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptized. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who I am, I, who I of whom I have said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself do not know him, but for this purpose I, come, I came to baptize with these waters, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our sermon, uh, our Advent sermon series, uh, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. And before we, we turn to this text, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've given to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it speaks. Thank you for the gospel that it proclaims. Thank you, Lord, that it presents us with the person and work of Christ Jesus. And I, I do pray that the words that follow, Lord, would be faithful to your intentions to this text, Lord, and that you would use this passage, Lord, to make us know you, love you, rest more fully in your grace. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, like I said, today we're, we're continuing our sermon series on the ministry of, of John the Baptist and, and looking at how he prepares the way of the Lord. Looking at John's ministry helps us prepare our own hearts for the celebration of Christmas. Helps us to celebrate that first advent, that first coming of Christ so many years ago. And it also helps prepare our hearts to eagerly anticipate Christ's second coming, his second advent, that will one day happen. And today... 
Today we are attending to the account of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, and and we're going to look at this passage under three headings. The voice of preparation, the problem of sin, and the Lamb of God. So let's look at each of those in turn. Let's start with the voice of preparation. And if you remember, today's passage, it begins with the priests and the Levites being sent to John to find out who John is. Who are you? They ask. And John responds by telling them in no uncertain terms that he is not the Christ. Then they ask John more pointed, more direct questions. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John answers both of these questions negatively, responding, I am not. And certainly John would confess that he is not the Christ, that he's not the Messiah, but it's actually kind of surprising that John says that he is neither Elijah nor the prophet. In the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John the Baptist is identified in various ways as Elijah. With that, the three other gospel accounts explicitly identify John the Baptist as a prophet. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus calls John a prophet and more than a prophet. So then, why does John respond like this? Why does he deny these roles? Well, John's ministry is one of holy witnessing to Christ. John says, don't look at me, look to the one to whom I'm pointing. Think about it like this. If you go to a Christmas concert or a Christmas play during this Advent season, you probably will not look at the stage lights. If you spent the whole performance looking at the lights, then you would completely miss what the lights are showing you, what the lights are for. The lights let you see the stage. They direct you away from themselves and unto the action. The lights are not the show. But but we might say that the lights witness to the show. They point us to the show. John is like these stage lights. Don't look at me. Look to the one to whom I witness. Everything I'm doing is to make you focus on him. If you look at me, you'll miss the whole show. You'll miss the whole purpose of what I'm doing. To look at me is to actually undercut what I'm doing. I am a pointer and a witness, so look at the one to whom I point and witness. Talked about this in the kids' sermon. When when, when a person points, you don't look at the finger. You, You follow the finger and you look to what the finger is pointing to. The same is true for John. We need to look at where he points and to whom he witnesses. John is a kind of Elijah. He, like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, is also a prophet. John even dresses like Elijah. And here's the thing. Both John and Elijah are images of the true prophet who is to come. They are both pointers and witnesses to this coming prophet. Elijah, like John, has a ministry that will be fulfilled and completed in this coming prophet. So yes, John is a kind of Elijah. But the true and better Elijah, 
The one who completes and fulfills the ministry of Elijah is not even the Old Testament Elijah. It is this coming prophet. John is saying, don't look at me. Look to the one I'm pointing. Don't look at Elijah. Look to the one who's, who Elijah's whole ministry pointed. Look to the true and the better Elijah. And the religious leaders, they have this coming prophet in mind. Again, they ask John, are you the prophet? And they have in mind here a prophet like Moses, who God promises to his people in Deuteronomy 18. As one commentator explains, this prophet was believed to be a special end-time figure. This is the prophet to whom the ministries of John and Elijah ultimately point. And John assures the leaders that he is not this prophet. And notice something important. The religious leaders have separated this promised prophet from the promised Messiah. John confesses that he is not the Christ, and, and, and yet the religious leaders still think, well, well maybe he's, he's the prophet. Their expectation is too small. They think the Messiah and the prophet are different figures. Even more, John's admission that he is not the Christ is more than a denial. Again, the people ask John, who are you? And in light of, of John's response, we, we, we can see that rumors are, are swirling, that people are talking, that there's a suspicion that perhaps John this person right here, maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is the Christ. Maybe John is the promised Savior and Deliverer of God's people. However, when John is asked who he is, we read this. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And, and if you notice, the text reads a bit strangely here. And this is what is being stressed. John's statement of, I am not the Christ, is not a denial of who he is not, but a confession of who Christ is. His confession that he is not the Christ is another way that John points away from himself and unto Christ. Commentator Marianne May Thompson helps us see more here. Three times John answers these questions with a form of, I am not, I am not. And this contrasts with Jesus' seven I am statements in the same gospel, the gospel of John. John the Baptist's statements of I am not contrast with Jesus' statements of I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And when Jesus says, I am, he is identifying himself with God to the one who reveals himself as the great I am. And we actually see this most clearly in John 7, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
Jesus identifies himself here as the eternal God who is outside of time, and so before the time of Abraham. And the crowd knows exactly what Jesus is saying here. They understand that he's identifying himself as God, and so if you read it, they try to kill him for blasphemy. Jesus shows us who he is. Jesus tells us, I am. John confesses that he is not the Christ. I am not. But why would this be a confession? Again, John does not deny, but he confesses that he is not the Christ. Well, it's a confession because, again, everything about John, everything he does, his whole ministry is about Christ. His whole ministry is a finger pointing to Christ. Everything he does is a confession of who this coming Christ is. So much so that the one affirmative answer that John gives to these questions, they're not even his own words. He simply quotes the words of Scripture. He declares, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John is who he is because of his relation to the Christ, to the Messiah, to the promised deliverer and savior of God's people. And please note, the words of Isaiah here are making a strong, a huge, an enormous claim about the Christ. To make straight the way of the Lord is to make straight the way of God himself. God is the Lord, and in preparing the way of Christ, John is preparing the way of God. The people, their their expectations of, of the Messiah are much too small, much too little, much too feeble. When John confesses that he is not the Christ, he confesses that God is God and he is not. He confesses that his work, like the work of Elijah, is a finger pointing to, a spotlight shining upon the work of God in Christ. He confesses that the Christ is also the coming prophet. These are not two different figures. He confesses that the one whose way he prepares is God himself. John confesses that to understand who he is, you must understand the Christ. John is the I am not who orients his whole life and ministry around the great I am. Before anything else, John tells us, we must look at the Christ, at the Messiah, and we must know who he is. This, this is where everything stands or falls. Before anything else, you must wrestle with the identity of the Christ. That's why everything I'm doing is is not witnessing to me, but witnessing to him. And we still need John's witness, because here's the thing. Either truly, truly God is Christ, either Christ is God. Either he's God become human, or he's not. Either Christ is God, or Christ is a fraud. Either John's words are true or they are not. Christ is either everything, the deliverer, the prophet, God himself, or Christ is nothing. 
And if Christ is, in fact, everything, and you never took the time to search him out, to investigate his claims, to truly struggle with the one to whom John is pointing, then you are avoiding the most important question that life has set before you. As C.S. Lewis warns us, you must make your choice. You can shut Jesus up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. As John well knows, these are the only options. And we all must make our choice. The only thing that Christ cannot be is merely interesting. And perhaps you, perhaps you are considering Christianity, but you worry about what Christ will say about this or that area of your life. And that's a good and that's an important question. But it's not the first question you need to ask. The first question is this, who is Christ? Is he God or is he not? Is Christ the Lord or is he not? Absolutely everything, everything, everything follows from that question. This is why John prepares the way of Christ by pointing to him. Before you seek to understand anything else, you need to understand the identity of this one, of the Christ. And if Christ is God, if he's God, then not only should we hang on his each and every word, but absolutely what he says and what he does will surprise us. He's God. If Christ is God, God, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, wouldn't we expect God to break our expectations? Wouldn't we expect God to know better than us and to challenge us? In fact, if God did not surprise us, then that would be the first warning sign that we are not dealing with the true and living God, but only our own wishful thinking about God. And this truth brings us to our second point, the problem of sin. After John's questioning from the religious leaders, we read this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we'll see, this statement, this truth is very, very, very surprising. John the Baptist prepares the way of Christ, the one who is the Savior and the Deliverer. And at the risk of redundancy, right, to speak of a Savior and to speak of a Deliverer, it, it, it assumes that there's something that we need saving and delivering from. But what is it? What do we need saving and delivering from? What's wrong with us? And there are many, many, many answers to that question. And, and, and today I just want to look at, at one. And it might be a strange one, but, it, but it's important because it's one we still wrestle with in our society. Consider Sigmund Freud's answer to that question. He was the founder of psychoanalysis, a, a huge public intellectual over the past two centuries, and, and still, still quite influential in our thought and culture. And the literary theorist Thierry Eagleton 
Eagleton writes this about Freud's prognosis of humanity. Freud's estimate of human capacities is, on the whole, pessimistic. We are dominated by a desire for gratification and an aversion to anything which might frustrate it. As Eagleton notes, Freud's idea, Freud's assessment of humanity is very, very pessimistic. We're controlled by, by this urge to gratify our immediate desires. And in particular, we are pursuers of physical and erotic pleasures, and we are dominated by these desires. But Freud points out, in, in order to live, we have to come together in a society, which means we have to curb these desires. And in society, right, we can't act on our each and every desire. You can imagine the social chaos if we did. And Freud says, this repression keeps us from happiness, but this repression is necessary in order to give us life as we know it. And I put that forward because it's one answer to what is wrong with us. And so let's look at that. Is that the problem? Is the problem that we are always seeking immediate gratification? Is the problem with us that we are always dominated by these desires for physical pleasure that we cannot fulfill because of the constraints of society? Is the problem that our happiness is making good on our every physical desire, but then to do that, society would fall apart? Yes, this is a very pessimistic view of the human creature. The idea here is that we can never really rise above and we can only work to curb and repress our desires for physical pleasure. But here's the thing, and this is surprising. This isn't actually pessimistic enough. Again, John the Baptist tells us, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What we actually need to be saved and delivered from is not the mere desire for immediate gratification. John tells us what we need to be saved and delivered from is sin. But what is sin? At the most basic level, sin is putting ourselves in the place of God. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he calls sin the de-godding of God. What is wrong with the world is not our desire for immediate gratification. It's not pessimistic enough. What is wrong with the world is our desire to be God. This desire is the core of our sin. And this might seem ridiculous, but this is exactly what John has been addressing in his answers to the questions of the religious leaders. Again, John describes himself and his ministry wholly in relation to God. He lets the Lord, the coming Christ, determine himself in his ministry. As John will say later in the gospel, he must increase, but I must decrease. The problem is that people expect too little from the coming Messiah. They try to make Christ conform to their ideas. They pursue God as the God of their own expectations. This is what the ministry of John is fighting against. In the account of the fall of humanity, we find that in, in Genesis 3, we find humanity standing in the judgment of God. Adam and Eve desire to decide what is good and what is evil, wholly apart from God and his instruction. 
They even come to decide that God is evil. They think God is keeping them from their true good. And so they disobey God. And this is the basic pattern of human sin. Instead of letting God, their creator, tell them who they are, they tell God who he is. God, I must increase and you must decrease. I am and God, you are not. And we do the same thing and often we do this in very subtle ways that we don't even notice. Unlike John, we tell God who he is and who we are. That means we misunderstand God, and as a result, we misunderstand ourselves. We decide who we are and how we are meant to live, and so we tell God, you are not the creator, sustainer, perfecter, and king of our lives. We de-God God. We sin. And, and we can look at a few examples. For instance, because of technology, we're not reliant on people in the same way that we were in earlier times. And so we don't think that we actually need community. As we pointed out last week, we can work alone from home. We can shop alone from home. We can pass our time completely at home as we binge watch some show. We can exist entirely alone at home. And in so doing, we tell ourselves that we are not meant to live in community. We tell ourselves that we are just fine by ourselves. We define ourselves by ourselves with no relation to God. We tell God who he is and who we are. We tell God, I am and you are not. But we cannot escape the kind of creatures that we are. And it's no secret that we live in an epidemic of, of loneliness, an epidemic that the church should seek to fight. 15% of men have no close friendships, none at all. A recent Harvard study found that 36% of Americans feel serious loneliness. Even worse, suffering from loneliness is just as physically harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. And this loneliness, it, it compounds with all of the other struggles that we face in our life. As one article reports, stress will also affect you if you're more lonely. Financial trouble, health problems, and everyday obstacles may take a bigger emotional toll on individuals who lack social and emotional support. This is what happens when we believe that we can make ourselves whatever we want to make ourselves. This is what happens when we tell God both who he is and what we are. We don't think we need to listen to God. And so we cut against the kind of creatures that we are, the kinds of creatures that God has actually made us to be. We might also think about our relation to work and rest. God has given us a command to rest at least one day a week, a rest dedicated to the Lord. And today, we, we not only have trouble resting on the Sabbath, just like the Israelites did, but now, thanks to modern technology, we can work through the whole night, if need be. God tells us that we are creatures who must follow a pattern of work and rest that's actually built into our very nature. But we tell God in ourselves that we will work as much and as often as we see fit. We again put ourselves in the place of God. Tim Keller, for instance, he says that observing the Sabbath is an act of trust. He writes this, 
To practice Sabbath is a disciplined and faithful way to remember that you are not the one who keeps the world running, who provides for your family, not even the one who keeps your work projects moving forward. And yes, we we must faithfully steward all of these responsibilities, but we must also rest. Refusal to rest is refusal to admit that we are not God. Refusal to rest is the belief that your life depends on you. Refusal to rest is another way we de-God God. Refusal to rest is another way we sin. And just like with loneliness, we experience the fallout. A few years ago, medical doctor Lucy McBride, she wrote an article for The Atlantic entitled, By Now, Burnout is a Given. Overstress and, and overexhaustion in, in life has made burnout the rule and not the exception. McBride identifies burnout as a kind of, of societal program with, with serious mental and physical consequences across the board. Things like high blood pressure, headaches, herniated discs. When we work against our design, we cut against reality, and we suffer the consequences. But what about Freud's diagnosis that our happiness rests in fulfilling any and all of our physical desires? Well, if this is true, then then marriage should make us unhappy since monogamy limits us from so many forms of immediate gratification. However, a recent study from the University of Chicago, it, it provides data that shows us otherwise. One article says this, New research from the University of Chicago found that marriage is the most important differentiator of who is happy in America, and that falling marriage rates are a chief reason why happiness has declined nationally. And I hesitate to use this data because I don't want to marginalize the singles in our church. Both Christ and the Apostle Paul led the single life. So, did, so too did Christians like Augustine and Aquinas, Amy Carmichael, John Stott. The single life they led was a life full of deep connections and relations and community. And I pray that the church offers both the married and the single this kind of community. But this data is important because it shows us that contrary to Freud... The institution of marriage does not squash, but actually fosters happiness. We are not creatures whose happiness lies in gratifying each and every physical desire. In fact, if we live like this, we will be less happy. In the present life, we are designed either for the celibate single life or the lifelong covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. These are both modes of flourishing that the church should celebrate. And this is not necessarily easy. And and for many people, these two options may be a lifelong struggle for a variety of reasons. The church must be a community that welcomes and comes alongside people in these struggles. The church, that is, must be a community committed to human flourishing where we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And again, the problem is not that we desire immediate gratification. That's not pessimistic enough. 
The problem is that we desire to be God. We tell God who he is and who we are. This is what is wrong with the world, and this is sin. And maybe, maybe you're here and you disagree with part or, or, or all of what I've said today. And if that's the case, I am really, really glad that you're here. And I hope this is a place where you can wrestle with these issues, that you can talk through these issues. And again, again, this is key. Before absolutely everything else, the question that you need to answer is, who is Christ? Everything follows from that. For example, even the greatest marriage in this present life is only an image of the never-ending and incomparably more joyful union between Christ and his church. Just like John, Christ is ultimately a pointer to Christ. And just like John, we cannot confuse the finger with what it is pointing to. And so again, who is Christ? That brings us to our third and final point, the Lamb of God. If sin is the problem, then how does the Lamb of God deliver us from sin and save us from sin? Well, remember what sin is. It's it's putting ourselves in the place of God. And if that's true, then what can salvation be? If we, like John, understand ourselves in light of Christ's I am, then to understand what salvation is, we have to ask Who is Christ? John tells us, remember, Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But why does John speak of a a lamb here? Well, to speak of a lamb, especially in the imagery of the Old Testament, is to speak of a sacrifice. The lamb was killed in the place of the firstborn sons of the Israelites as they were in Egypt during the Passover. The lamb was killed in the place of the people of God in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And a coming lamb, a coming lamb is spoken about by the very same prophet who told us about this voice of one crying out in the wilderness. The prophet Isaiah spoke of John, but he also spoke of Christ as a lamb. In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we are told of one who is like a lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah also tells us this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This This is the most surprising of all messages, so much so that even John himself struggles to comprehend it. In Matthew 11, John, John sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? At this point, John has been unjustly thrown in prison, and soon he will be executed by the cruel King Herod. At this point, John has forgotten what is ultimately wrong with the world. And please hear me. Yes, Herod is unjust. Yes, one day all such evil, all unrighteousness will be overthrown when Christ returns. And as Christians, we anticipate that day as we work for the flourishing of our own city 
in society. Yes, please hear me say that. But primary to all of that, the lamb must deliver us from ourselves. The lamb must deliver us from our own sin. And so how is it that Christ, the lamb of God, responds to John's question? He answers by quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah 36 and Isaiah 61. Or he sort of quotes from Isaiah. Jesus says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Leopards are, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. However, as, as, as theologian Peter Lightheart points out, Jesus actually leaves the bits of, of judgment out of these verses. Jesus takes out Isaiah 35, 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He takes out Isaiah 61, 2, which tells of the Lord's servant who will proclaim the day of the vengeance of God. What is Jesus doing here? Is Jesus showing us that judgment, that the judgment is simply an Old Testament concept with no place in the New Testament? No. Jesus is the Lamb. What this means is that Jesus will take this judgment upon himself. Remember, sin is us putting ourselves in the place of God. But what is salvation? Salvation is God putting himself in the place of us. We have put ourselves in the place of God. We have sinned. We deserve to bear the punishment and the judgment for this. But God, the Son, has become human. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he has suffered the death that we, not he, deserved. The Lamb of God put himself in our place on the cross. He sacrificed himself to bear the judgment that we earned. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this Lamb... The Lamb of God, he leaves us with only two options. One, either we bear the punishment for our own sin, or two, we put our faith in the Lamb who bore it for us. Either we will suffer the judgment for putting ourselves in the place of God, or we will place our faith in the God who put himself in the place of us. And yes, this is a much more pessimistic view than that of Freud, more pessimistic than any man-made philosophy. We don't just desire immediate gratification. We want to be God in God's place. But it's not just that Christianity is much more pessimistic. It's also much more optimistic than any man-made philosophy. And we see this, too, in John's answer to, or sorry, in Jesus' answer to John in Matthew 11. Peter Lightheart points out that Jesus not only takes out the bits about judgment when he quotes from Isaiah, but he also adds something as well. Lightheart writes this, Isaiah talks about blind and deaf and lame being healed, but Isaiah says nothing about lepers being cleansed or the dead being raised. Jesus says that his ministry actually goes beyond the hopes of Isaiah and the prophets. This this is surprising. This is a deep, deep cause for joy. This is the God who takes us lower than we would expect. 
He shows us the depth of our sin and the judgment that we deserve. But he's also the God who takes us much higher than we would ever expect. He promises us a fully restored creation, no death, no corruption, fully restored hearts and perfect loving communion with God and neighbor. We will glorify God and enjoy him forever. These are the incomparable depths and heights of the gospel. This is what the Lamb of God saves us from and what he saves us for. This is the great I am who tells us who we are. Who is Christ? He's the God who loves us so deeply that he went to the greatest of lengths to bring us back to himself. And who are we? We are those who Christ, the Lord, God himself, gave himself up for in love. And because of the great I am, this is who we are. And there is no identity that we could claim that is greater or more joyful than this. And so like John, our life should be one of total and complete relationship to Christ, to the glorious Lamb of God. The 20th century theologian Karl Barth, he he had a painting above his desk, and it was a painting of of John the Baptist pointing to Christ. And he had it there because he, he believed that the role of the theologian, the role of theologians was always to do just that before the watching world, always to point to Christ. And and, and absolutely that's the case, and, and that's a good course of action. That's what we are called to as well. But friends, it's not just before our fellow humans that our chief action is to point to Christ. Standing before Christ upon his return, on his second advent, as, as all of us will someday do, ask yourself, what will be your first impulse? Will you make excuses for all of the times that you failed to live out your calling? Will you offer reasons for all the things that you didn't do but you know that you should have done? Or will you stand there with boldness and with confidence and simply point to Christ? Before Christ, we must also point to Christ. Christ is not only the judge, but he is the judge who was judged for us. Christ alone is our defense. Christ alone is our righteousness. Not only before our fellow humans, but even before Christ himself, we must say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the Lamb. We thank you, Lord, for the one who lived the life that we should have died, who suffered the death that we should have died. Lord, we know that we have put ourselves in your place. We have sinned. But we know, Lord, that you have saved us by putting yourself in our place. Help us cling, rest, rejoice in that hope. We ask this in Christ, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.